When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, to get 20, 20, 20, to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM. This is Political Currency with Ed Balls and George Osborne. So we're here. Did you have a um, busy week? Is it just all sleepless nights and banking meetings? (laughs) Well, there's, of course, looking after the various babies takes up a lot of time. But I did get out with my mother to go to the theatre on Tuesday night. It's a very, very good play. Called Enemy and you left of... Thea at home with all the kids. Well, she was very accommodating, allowing me to do that. And when would my mum see this play? It was called Enemy of the People with Matt Smith, you know, the Doctor Who, Prince Philip in the Crown. It's an old play, an Ibsen play from the 19th century, but it's very contemporary. It's all about a man who warns that the water supply of a town is poisoned and then the town turns against him. It's supposed to be the model for Jaws. Anyway, it's been updated and he rants. He goes from being truth teller to kind of conspiracy theorist. And there's a big rant against the liberal majority. And at one point he looks at me and he goes, with their podcasts. No. And I thought... Was he actually looking at you? Well, I felt he was. It probably is part of the script. (laughs) How many other hundreds of people were there in the... (laughs) Well, maybe I'm a bit paranoid. When I I was Chancellor, I did go to Warhorse. At the end, they said, now we've got someone in the audience here tonight. And for that reason, we're going to have a special collection as you leave to help those who've had to get rid of their ponies because of austerity. Ponies? <laughs> yes, they're ponies. That doesn't mean £1,000. That means ponies you get on. <laughs> no, no, yeah, no, we're not using betting terminology. This is people who weren't able to keep their horses anymore because of austerity. And I had this little thought as I left the theatre, do I put money into this collection? I thought I'd better. Did anybody in the theatre boo? No. So that, you know, in that, that was case, a big step forward. So you got off lightly compared yes. to... And look, so this week, in no way am I going to say that this is a reflection on different paths travelled, but there you are in London going to the theatre. Meanwhile, Lord Cameron is flying around the world off to the Falklands and then to the G20. And, you know, what a distinction, what a difference. But, We're going to but, come back but, and talk about that Ed, For those who know us, yeah. they'd say George would always 
have rather been in the theatre in the West End. And David always wanted to go around, look around the War Memorial or Goose Green or whatever. That, that is, if you want to know the difference between George Osborne and David Cameron, it's summed up there. Well, we will reflect upon his purpose in going to Latin America later on. First of all, though, where are we going to start? So we've got to talk about the shenanigans in Parliament yesterday, those extraordinary scenes, Speaker Lindsay Hoyle making that decision to call the vote on the Labour motion, which breaks with all precedent, basically let Labour off the hook because it didn't force the Labour Party to divide on an SNP motion. All quite complicated and technical. We're going to look into it and see, does it matter? Is the Speaker's future secure? What does it mean out there in the real world, not just for the Labour Party, but for, of course, the situation in Gaza? And then with the budget now less than two weeks away, we're going to talk about the economy, but in particular housing and what's happening in the housing market, in particular for young people. And what is the economics and the politics of the current state of the UK housing market and what it means for the two main parties as they look forward to the general election? Yeah, huge issue. And then we are going to talk about David Cameron. How's he doing? Lord Cameron. Lord Cameron of Chipping Norton, of course. And uh, how's he doing as foreign secretary? What about these big issues he's wrestling with at the moment at the G20, particularly the tragedy of Alexei Navalny's murder and how the West responds to that, but also perhaps look a bit at the Falklands and what's going on in Argentina. Is it a leadership bid or just a massive junket? That's what we're going to talk about <laughs> later on. It can be both. Anyway, we will discuss that later. Let's first of all, though, turn to the thing that's dominating the airwaves at the moment and uh, a lot of the political conversation, which is what happened in the House of Commons. So just the context to this, this was a SMP vote on a motion on Gaza, which looked like it was going to divide the Labour Party. We discussed this actually on our podcast a week ago as a potential challenge for Keir Starmer. And then the common speaker breaks with convention, Lindsay Hoyle breaks with the convention, and he basically lets Labour off the hook. And here's a little um, medley of what was going on in the House of Commons yesterday. I don't think now is the time. And what I want to do, I want to move on and I want to meet with the important players I'm now going to hand over to the deputy. I'm just going to leave it at that. The government does not have confidence that it will be able to vote on its own motion. For that reason, the government will play no further part in the decision this House takes on today's proceedings. I am, and I regret, with the deepness, with my sadness, that it's ended up on like that in this position. I was absolutely, absolutely convinced that the decision was done with the right intention. I will take significant convincing that your position is not now intolerable. So I have to say, it's been one of those moments where I've been really struck between the disconnect between my former life. I know I would have been absolutely furious as a Tory MP. And today, you know, muttering about the future of the Speaker and how, you know, parliamentary procedure needed to be changed and whatever. And, you know, my current life where I listen to it and it all seems a bit obscure and bizarre and irrelevant. What's your reaction to the events? And do you think it matters? Well, look, it's obviously a shambles and doesn't reflect well on Parliament. We've had this week the unusual position of the Prince of Wales saying very clear things about the need for progress and the terrible deaths and calling for peace. I'm sure the Prince of Wales' words coordinated with David Cameron and the Foreign Office. And the idea that the potential monarch is clear about 
the political situation of the day while Parliament finds itself unable to be clear about the situation of the day. So, look, it was a shambles. A mistake by Hoyle? Well, I think yes, because to change procedure in um, this way is very messy. But it was accumulation of a series of mistakes. So first of all, we've talked in the past about how Labour has got behind the curve on this issue. It's been causing huge division. Keir Starmer scrambling to get ahead of this issue politically. But at the weekend, he did call for an immediate ceasefire. A ceasefire that lasts was his language. And I think both for David Cameron and for the government and also for Labour, what's happening in Rafa, the threat of a potential invasion there down in the south, is a game-changing situation. But of course, we end up in the House of Commons on Wednesday, not with a government motion setting out its view of the future or a Labour motion with its view of the future, or a Labour amendment to a government motion, which is what would normally happen, the government and the opposition. Instead, you have the SNP with a motion, which I'm sure, you know, on one level was well-meaning. Well, they get special days. They get a few moments in the year when they can choose the topic. But the whole thing was also designed for party political reasons, put Labour into a difficult situation where, you know, to try and wind up a rebellion. Labour then puts an amendment down, which it can do on an opposition day. That's a normal thing. But on an opposition day, whoever is the opposition party putting down their motion, they do that. And then the government normally amends it. And that is all that happens. In this case, unusually, the Speaker agreed after Labour requests that not only the SNP motion and the government motion would be voted upon, but also the alternative opposition amendment from the Labour Party. That is a complete break with precedent. That is not the normal way in which things would happen. And there was a bit of boasting going on from some Labour sources saying, we told him, do this, or you won't he was be speaker che- after the election. This morning he comes into the tea room of the House Commons. That's where the MPs have their you know coffees and sandwiches and whatever, as you know. And uh, he walks in and all the Labour People cheered him, (laughs) which probably didn't help. That that is massively unhelpful. On the other hand, a serious point, the Speaker Lindsay Hoyle was the Deputy Speaker when Joe Cox was murdered back in 2016. He was the Speaker when David Amos Mm. was murdered a few years back. And it is absolutely true, we're talking here about MPs who aren't simply getting abuse on social media. It's much worse than that. We're talking about kind of genuine threats of harm, of violence, death threats. And the points, I think, which were put to the Speaker, and not just from Labour people, you had people like Tobias Elwood, Charles Walker making similar points. Those are Tory MPs. Tory MPs. If you put people in a position where they either have to vote for something which they don't agree with, the SNP motion, or you don't vote at all, that leaves them massively exposed. And the right thing to do is to allow people in this debate to express the position they want to take and that therefore you should allow them to vote for a Labour motion. And I think that Lindsay Hoyle was probably, I don't think he gave in to bullying from Labour. I think he genuinely would have felt that he wanted to give everybody, a government person, a Labour person, an SNP person, the opportunity to vote for the motion they wanted to vote for so that everybody would have their position on the record. But of course, by breaking precedent, it then causes complete chaos. It ends up with um, only the Labour motion being put, which we can explain if you like. It's such a mess. Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, if you're going to change parliamentary convention, don't do it on the eve of a key vote where Labour's divided and there's lots of pressure on the Labour leader. And if you're particularly somebody... You should probably get agreement from both main parties. And you, you know, and he, so this, this was definitely not the moment to break the convention. And to some degree, actually, Lindsay Hall is hoist by his own petard. But So when he replaced John Burko, part of his sort of manifesto, because there are other candidates to be speaker and they have to persuade 
their fellow MPs to vote for them, was that if I ever depart from convention, then the clerk of the House of Commons can put a letter forward that all the MPs can see and shows where I've gone wrong or where I've disagreed with the clerk. This was a response to sort of Brexiteer feeling that John Burko was regularly breaking conventions at key moments in that sort of... And and so, you know, that also happened yesterday. The clerk of the House Commons said Lindsay Hall got it wrong. Well, he said he was breaking the yeah. convention, but he said that there could be an argument for yes. it. Yes, yeah, that's you're completely right. So that's the correct position. I mean... Let's take these in chunks, the, the issues here. So first of all, Lindsay Hoyle himself, we both know him really well. Is he really at risk? There's talk of him being deposed as speaker. Personally, I think that's highly unlikely. And for those who don't know, Lindsay is a, he presents himself as this sort of bluff northerner, you know, the man from Chorley, which is one of the mill towns in Lancashire. You know, I used to go campaigning there and it did absolutely no good whatsoever. Despite the fact we won various seats around there off Labour, we never, ever got anywhere near Chorley. And he used to tease me that I had to eat a lot more black pudding in Chorley Market. But he's presented himself as that. But he's actually red aristocracy. He's, he's a red princeling because his dad was an MP and was uh, chair of the Parliamentary Labour Party. He Doug was, Hoyle. His dad was a um, very uh, eminent MP for many years. I knew him and Yvette knew him well as well as his son, Lindsay. We were actually invited by Lindsay once to go to see to see Warrington versus Castleford in the rugby over in Warrington. You know, the local MP invites us. And so we go with three kids under nine years old, drive all the way over to Warrington. We'd had a message from Lindsay a couple of days before to say that sadly his dad, Doug, wouldn't be able to be there because he'd actually gone on the all-party Caribbean trip to the Caribbean on a fact-finding mission. And uh, goodness knows what facts he was finding. But anyway, he was out there on this <laughs> Bar was. <laughs> and so and so we drive over with our three kids to go watch this rugby league match and we arrive at the stadium and we're met downstairs by Lindsay's researcher and then we meet Lindsay's um very nice uh, wife but there's no sign of the local MP and you know Yvette says you is Lindsay arriving late and they said look we're terribly sorry and very very pleased to have you here to come and visit the constituency and to see Warrington play Castleford but actually Lindsay's not here he's on the all-party Caribbean trip with Doug he'd actually he'd actually gone to the Caribbean on this trip hadn't told us and anyway well, it was, I, it was I'm a with great Lin- rugby match I mean much as much <laughs> as I love you Ed I think if it was a choice between a rugby league match in Warrington and a well, trip to Antigua I think I would but the truth is, <laughs> I might be with Lindsay and Doug <laughs> I know but the truth is he's actually a very nice very generous man a great campaign a bit of a good old boy isn't he a, a bit of a member of parliament and he fought a marginal seat so he he knows what it is yeah. to do local politics and i think he's handled the speakership really well over a very very difficult few years with covid and all the threats against mp's and i don't think that look we'll see i i say this now at 10:30 in the morning i might be wrong by the time the podcast comes out but i don't think he's under threat here and i think the reason is if you stand back and say what's going on the smp have a legitimate concern that because the government pulled their motion and Labour's went through, the SNP motion then fell, and that meant they couldn't even have a vote on their position. Although, what were the SNP doing? They were playing party politics vis-a-vis Labour in Scotland to try and get Labour rebels to vote for the SNP motion. So they were playing some politics, but that's, that, that's legitimate. But the government pulling the motion, why did the government pull this motion? Did the government pull the motion because they were outraged at this break in parliamentary procedure? Did they pull the motion because they had been prevented from being involved with the SNP in a political stunt to try and divide Labour, while, by the way, a terrible war is happening in the Middle East? I mean, that's actually what this is all about. Or did they actually pull the motion because what they knew was that in the same way as lots of Labour MPs might have been thinking, I'd quite like to vote for the SNP motion, there were quite a lot of Conservative Party MPs who were looking at this and thinking, to be quite honest, I quite like the look of the the Labour motion, 
And rather than forcing Tory MPs to have to choose between voting for the government motion and against the Labour motion, the best thing to do was pull the government motion entirely and therefore Tory MPs didn't have to vote at all. And that's actually, I think, partly what was going on here. So it was actually fairly kind of grubby internal party politics on one of the big challenges of our time. We did have an interesting question actually come overnight from a Tory MP called Steve Bryan, who's a very nice, very capable MP for Winchester and I think chair of the health committee at the moment in Parliament. He he sent us this question. Hi, George. Hi, Ed. Steve Bryan here. You said, I think with some degree of admiration a few weeks ago, that Labour would do whatever it takes to win. With that in mind, was this week's events in the House with the Gaza vote and the Speaker triumph or tragedy for Labour? My answer to Steve is, well, it's a short-term triumph because they've avoided a big rebellion on Gaza. It probably means that Lindsay Hoyle is going to have to be quite tough on Labour in the coming months to show he's not partisan. I mean, I think for the rest of the world, it looks a bit depressing. There's quite an interesting comment from a guy that you and I both know who worked in Number 10 as a civil servant, Tom Fletcher, and then was an ambassador in the Middle East and now is uh, uh, head of one of the Oxford colleges. You know, he says, don't think this doesn't matter. Because you could say, look, it's all parliamentary games. And by the way, like the British House of Commons, arguably the British government have very little influence on what's actually happening in Gaza and, and the Middle East. But he makes a point that for those who hold out for a sort of sensible middle solution in Israel-Palestine, you know, somewhere between the Palestinian extremists and the kind of extreme Israeli position that there should be no Palestinian state. They hold out for sensible Western politics that's going to push the two warring parties towards that solution. And if you look at what's happening in the House of Commons, you know, the idea that the people in the House of Commons last night are going to be the peacemakers when they can't even bring about peace for themselves sets a bad precedent. So, you know, it does probably have a kind of damaging impact on Britain's standing. And that ultimately is a problem for Labour if they want to be the government later this year. Of course, that's true. But Labour got out of jail. They were worried that their motion wouldn't be called and that therefore it would be a choice of not voting at all or voting for the SNP motion, which was a problem for the Labour leadership. And it turned out the other way around, which is the only motion which was passed was the Labour motion. So in that sense, it's a success. It's unifying. They don't have the kind of rebellions they had in the autumn. If this was a bullying of the speaker which he gave into, that's a problem for Labour. But I don't think that's what's happened here. I genuinely think that Lindsay Hoyle, even if it was cat-candid, was trying to do the right thing for the House of Commons and wasn't anticipating the government pulling the vote in this way. But isn't the truth that when you stand back from the mess and the bad impression it gives of Parliament, what you see is a country which at the moment isn't finding it easy to say what it thinks and lead on this issue, as we've talked about previously. I think Lord Cameron has actually been doing a better job on that than um, the Prime Minister, the the leader of the opposition, or most of the main parties. It would have been much better if there was a clear position being set down in a motion in Parliament, which Labour and Conservative MPs could come around together, or where the differences could be reflected in in an amendment rather than the shambles of uh, yesterday. If I could interrupt. So Tom Fletcher, who we were just talking about, a former diplomat, he had a go at drafting a motion that he thought that almost all Labour and Conservative MPs could sign up to, which is, Israeli and Palestinian civilians have faced unacceptable violence. This House calls for His Majesty's government to work urgently with allies for a ceasefire that enables hostage releases, gets vital aid to Gaza, isolates extremists and leads to a two-state solution. And that is actually the position that 
almost all Labour and Conservative MPs would sign up to. But if you think so, how can our politics and our parliament not deliver that outcome? Well, it's been like this for a few years now. If you think back to 2019, how many times could we have written down a motion on trying to deal with the Brexit outcome in which there would have been a clear majority in parliament, and yet that motion was never put, or even if it was, people decided to vote against it for narrow party reasons. The SNP don't want to vote for that because they want to divide Labour. I think that the government was trying to put Labour in a spot as well. And the fact is Labour ends up coming out of this united despite its best efforts. And if I was Keir Starmer, I would think this. I've had a really important lesson in the last three months about what it is to get behind the curve in politics, to not to be leading. He's still hampered by that LBC interview back in October, in the days after the uh, the Hamas attack. In when you said Israel. it was legitimate to cut off the water supply. You did, to, which, uh, which, which to was... Pu- to Gaza, yeah. And then to spend so long kind of correcting that. And so if this motion puts him on the front foot, that he's got to be statesmanlike and stay on the front foot and try to, as you say, find common ground across politics rather than... I don't think he's on this one looking for division, but he needs to stay ahead of the curve now. Now, what about Lindsay Hoyle's argument that MPs are facing... If essentially, he was saying death threats or threats to the security of themselves and their families. Given that two MPs have been murdered in recent years, and Mike Freer, the Conservative MP for Finchley, he's announced he's standing down because of threats to his life, and he has to wear a stab vest when he goes to constituency meetings. I mean, there's an argument here that, you know, Lindsay Hall is reflecting a real situation that MPs are facing in their personal lives and in their constituencies. But you get a counter argument, which is, we shouldn't be giving in to this kind of intimidation. You know, my good friend Danny Finkelstein writes a column in The Times. You know, he says Lindsay Hall is making completely the wrong argument. You shouldn't be changing procedure or or helping MPs deal with that kind of violence out there in the country. You should be confronting the violence and confronting the extremism. So it's an interesting... I, I'm not sure I totally agree with Danny. I think, you know, you have to take for real these threats. But how real are the threats? Because some people think it's all a bit overdone. I think the threats, as far as I understand it, are very real. And this is not sort of social media abuse. It's much worse than that. I think part of the challenge for Keir Starmer now, you know, he had a vote in the Commons, which has reunited the Labour Party around a position. But of course, a few months ago, there were very exposed MPs who decided not to rebel. People like Rishanar Ali in East London, Shabana Mahmood in Birmingham, West Streeting in East London as well. And because they voted with the Labour position and didn't vote with the rebels, they have had big, big problems. And I think it's not just words. It's it's worse than that. I'm not saying with those three individuals, but generally, there's been lots of nasty stuff going on. And when you have simultaneously a national security imperative, which what happens in Israel-Gaza is, and also a threat to members of parliament across all parties, the right thing to do is for the parties to come together and be statesmanlike. And that is what you would do at a time of war or conflict. And that's what we should be doing here. And I think the reality is, look, I think Labour got behind the curve and has made a mess of it. But the idea that we're having a row now about party political games and manoeuvring yesterday, which is what the SNP were up to, and I think is what the Conservatives were up to as well. I mean, that is unbecoming. That is non-statesmanlike. And I think that the answer to Danny is not to say the Speaker's illegitimate to worry about threats to individual MPs and to try and break procedure. The right thing to say to Danny is this is a time where Parliament should do a better job of uniting and leading. And that's what should happen now. Yeah. And essentially, David Cameron... 
Keir Starmer, they basically agree on the way forward. And Tory MPs which is they, agree they want, with Labour's motion yesterday, right. which is partly why they didn't want to be in a position of having right. to vote against it. So I think the conclusion is that whatever the kind of parliamentary games, and you know, and we were experts at those parliamentary games when we were active, so we understand that. But whatever the parliamentary games... from the outside, games, we find them a bit unedifying now. A bit unedifying. Because we've moved on, we've grown up. We, we, we've, <laughs> we've, certainly, we've matured. We've certainly got older, that's for sure. <laughs> but, you know, I think we think Parliament should find a way to express a position that the vast majority of MPs on both sides agree with. Now, we should move on, but I'm going to move on just by saying this. PMQs yesterday, it wasn't a bust-up about the Middle East, an argument, nor was it about the economy, the cost of living, the budget. It was actually about uh, Kemi Badenoch's row with the former chair of the post office who she's sacked. And there's a tit for tat going on and he's published his memo and does it fully substantiate what he said? It's not clear that it does. But her response last weekend was very, very aggressive. I wonder whether um, this rising star in the Conservative Party, whether it's wise for her repeatedly to pick fights in the way she seems to be doing. But standing back, aside from her personal position, is it really in the Conservative Party's interests for the last five days to have been so dominated in Parliament and politically by Kemi Badenoch's row with the former chair of the post office? Well, you know, I like uh, Kemi Badenoch's pugnacious style. And I think, you know, the Conservative Party needs to demonstrate some fight. And she is one of the cabinet ministers who is doing that. She did a really good interview for those who want to know more about her about her upbringing in the Times newspaper just over a week ago, which is definitely worth reading because I think it also speaks to this looming issue in British politics, which you certainly have in American politics now, about identity politics and what's the best response to it. You know, generally, I'm a, I'm a fan of her approach. I kind of wonder from her point of view whether she really wants to pick a fight with this guy because it's a bit asymmetric, by which I mean no one's really heard of the head of the post office and she's the person who wants to be the next Tory leader and prime minister. And she's now put herself at the centre of handling the post office issue. In a way she wasn't quite before. Before, what did Ed Davey do? What did Tony Blair yeah. do? What was the history? What did Horizon do? The question now is, what's Kemi Bad not doing? It reminds me a bit of the Michael Howard row when he was Home Secretary, for those who have got long memories, when he sacked the head of the prison service and Jeremy Paxman famously asked him like uh, many, many times whether he had overruled the service government chief, you know, lost in the midst of time. But it's just a reminder that as a cabinet minister, you've got to be a little bit careful about picking fights that even if you win, and I think she has established that the version of events that we initially heard from the chair of the post office was not completely the case. But, you know, is it a fight she wants to have? And then to your question to me, is this the fight that Rishi Sunak and Downing Street want to have? Now, I'm getting a, the trouble is I'm going to sound like a stuck record, but part of political campaigning and messaging is sounding like a stuck record and getting your message across again and again. You know, here's another week that has gone by where they're not talking about the economy. The best things that have been said on the economy have come from the governor of the Bank of England, who said this week essentially that the economy potentially turned a corner and things were going to get better. But instead, the headlines have been dominated by Kemi Badnock having a row with the chair of the post office and now potentially Penny Mordaunt as leader of the House of Commons having a row about the role of the speaker. Plus Rishi Sunak on mobile phones. Yeah. I mean, again, in mobile phones in schools. And you know, each week that goes past, I'm not saying these issues aren't important. Of course, the post office scandal is a big one. We've discussed it on the show. We've just been discussing the House of Commons and so on. But if you're the government, the Tory government trying to get re-elected, 
you have to land your economy message. Is this your personal obsession? Or do you think, are you you reflecting a wider world? Well, I'd certainly pick up from people who listen to this podcast, including senior members of the government, that they share the frustration that they're unable to focus on the economy week after week. So my recommendation is shut down these rows. If you're leading the cabinet, you're the prime minister, you can tell these cabinet ministers, back off, take the heat out of these rows. What Linton Crosby, the great Tory campaigner, used to tell us to do, which is scrape the barnacles off the boat, i.e. anything that's getting in the way of the boat going in the direction you want, get it out, get them off the boat and focus on the economy. And I think this this brings us to one of the biggest economic issues. You might not think of it as an economic issue, but I do. And that is housing and the housing market and the way that young people are really struggling to get onto the housing ladder. And that's what we're going to talk about next. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. So welcome back. We're going to talk next about the coming budget and whether housing will figure in that budget. And in particular, whether Michael Gove is going to succeed in his lobbying, because he's been trying quite hard over the last week or so to persuade the Chancellor Jeremy Hunt that housing should be on the agenda. Here's what he said when he was speaking to Laura Koonsberg on her show. You even told the Sunday Times you're worried that if young people don't get the homes they need, they might abandon democracy. Aren't you actually worried if young people don't get the homes they need, they're abandoning the Conservative Party? No, um, it's not about party politics. It's about making sure that everyone in this country has a stake in society and that people have a warm, safe and decent home. Well, of course, it is about the economy and making sure that we build the houses we need, that people have a warm, secure home. And we can come back to this later. There's no doubt that not building enough houses is a real drag on our economy and growth. But it's also about politics. And there was a really, really good piece by John Byrne Murdoch in the Financial Times a couple of weeks ago, which I think has really set the agenda in policy discussions. Michael Gove will have read it. The headline was, Why are young people deserting conservatism in Britain but nowhere else? And in this piece, he does this very innovative piece of analysis where he looks at what has happened to the voting profile by age, people voting for right of centre parties. And he points out that in all countries, you know, in America, only about 40% of young people are voting for conservative parties in New Zealand and Canada, France, Germany. It's all kind of similar, 30 to 40%, less than a majority of under 40-year-olds voting for the conservative party. But in Britain, it's only one in 10 under 40s according to the opinion polls, will vote Conservative at the next election. So Britain is a real outlier 
under 40-year-olds much less likely to vote Conservative than in other comparable countries. And then in the article, he points out that um, if you look at what's happened to home ownership, the share of 25 to 34-year-olds who own their own home, that's fallen in America by six percentage points since the early 1990s. It's down by eight percentage points in Germany since the early 1990s, three in France. In Britain, it's down by 22 percentage points, a huge fall in young people who are owning their home over those 30 years. And then the other thing he points out is that when you look at polls of people's view about upward mobility, do you think that people of your generation will be able to get on and become wealthier and do better? In Britain, the percentage of of under 30-year-olds who say yes to that question is now much lower than in Germany, Netherlands, Sweden, Spain, America. So something has happened in our country around pessimism, around people's ability to afford housing who are younger. We know it's like a continual topic and concern, and it has this political dimension too. And that is why I think Michael Gove is is talking about it, because it's a big deal. Yeah. So first of all, Michael Gove is on manoeuvres. Michael Gove is the most experienced member of the cabinet. And in every department he's been in, education, justice, the environment, you know, he shakes things up, whether you like it or not. He comes with an agenda. And in the housing department, he has sought to do two things. One is to get more homes built. He tried to impose essentially targets on getting homes built across the country. That was defeated by the Tory backbenchers who didn't want the rows in their constituencies around uh, housing development. And then second, he's tried to introduce changes that benefit tenants against landlords. So give more rights to tenants and make the Tory party more of the champion of the tenant than the landlord. And he's run into huge opposition from landlords. And I don't mean just like landlords who've got like hundreds and hundreds of flats, but people who might have a couple of buy-to-let properties. I'm on his side on both of these things because he's identified this big, big problem for the Tory party, which is what is the offer to young people on housing? And the Tory party under Margaret Thatcher and indeed going way back to Harold Macmillan, was the party of home ownership. It was a party of getting young people onto the housing ladder. And that has collapsed in recent years. And some of that is due to the financial crisis originally and drying up of mortgage finance and recent increases in interest rates. You know, those are all relevant to the housing market. But fundamentally, we haven't been building enough homes. And the Tory party has been writing a very, very long political suicide note to itself over the last 14 years by blocking the attempts of successive Conservative housing ministers to change that situation and get more homes built. It's funny when you say successive Conservative housing ministers, there's been 15 since 2010. I mean, it's been one of the the highest turnover jobs to do. But this goes back beyond 2010. I mean, it has been a struggle for 30, 40 years for us to meet our housing targets. The last Labour government also struggled to do so. We set up a review in the early 2000s, which Kate Barker, who was at the time a member of the Monetary Policy Committee, the Barker Review, to try to build a consensus to build more homes. Um, But it was a real struggle to do so. And as you say, the decision Michael Gove was forced into at the end of last year to back off the... It wasn't backing off the target. It was saying that individual areas could decide whether or not to conform to that target in their local area. And according to the House Builders Federation, 60 different areas over the last year have now withdrawn or gone slow on their local housing plans. They say that that's going to mean tens of thousands of houses which would have been built won't be built. So that sort of local opposition holding us back on something which is hugely 
important, not just for young people, because they're feeling the brunt of it, but also for the economy. Yeah, so you pointed to the FT article. There was also a really influential piece on Conservative Home, which is the sort of in-house website. Not not in-house, it's uh, read by lots of Conservative MPs. And Paul Goodman, who until very recently was the editor of it, and he's actually just been put in the House of Lords uh, by Rishi Sunak, you know, he wrote a piece pointing out that the young people of this country were deserting the Conservative Party, as you say. And that was not always the case. In 2010, amongst people in their 20s and 30s, the Conservatives got a third of the vote. And now it's less than 10% of the vote. So it's not the case that young people don't vote Tory. They're just not voting Tory at the moment. And he makes the link to home ownership, Paul Goodman does. And there has just been a sort of lack of collective will amongst Conservative MPs to say, look, yes, obviously some of our colleagues face these marginal seat battles where they've got to oppose local housing development and we will tolerate that. But we have substantial majorities in these different parliaments and we're going to use them to push through the home building that we know is not only good for our country but serves our ideological purposes. Because remember, it's a core part of conservative thinking that you want a home-owning, property-owning democracy, that you want people to have a stake in capitalism, that you want people to have their own assets. And the voting evidence suggests that one of the leading indicators of whether someone's going to vote conservative is whether they own their own home, despite the attempts by Michael Gove to improve the situation for tenants and try and win their support as well. So to starve off the housing supply for young people really is very, very short-sighted by, that- by Conservative prime ministers who should be really imposing this decision on recalcitrant Conservative MPs and say, look, to some of them, you've got big, safe majorities. Why don't you decide where these new homes are going to be built? They're only going to make your majority bigger, by the way, if you have the foresight to see that in a couple of years' time, the housing development's going to open and there are going to be a lot of young families in there with their own property who are going to be supporting you. And that just, I'm afraid, has not happened. And it's, you know, under the Cameron government, we tried to loosen planning controls. Nick Bowles, who asked us a question actually on one of our previous podcasts, he was the housing minister who tried to do that. We made some progress, then we got pushed back. Theresa May reversed a lot of it. Boris Johnson did nothing. Rishi Sunak closed down the help to buy scheme, which was helping people get uh, onto the housing ladder without having to put down big deposits, something they're now thinking of trying to reinvent. You know, it's just there's been no kind of strategic thinking of how do you build a permanent conservative majority. And we pay a price as a country. Look, it is partly about home ownership. That's really important. You know, there are very good reasons why Labour didn't oppose Margaret Thatcher's right to buy because Labour wants to be on the side of home ownership. I thought they did oppose it to begin with and then well, came every, round. Well, exactly. It was part of the kind Once of... Once they decided they wanted to win, yes. they, 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 they came round again. There's also a reason why Michael Gove is talking about the rights of renters because with so many more young people renting, that's important. And the affordability issue isn't only about buying a home. It's also about the cost of renting a home. And the two things go together. When we started out in politics, the average house price was three times average earnings. Today, it's eight times average earnings. Much, much harder to buy a house because they're so much more expensive. But higher house prices also mean higher rents for people trying to rent as well. And the economic impact is across the country. In London, if you are on average earnings, the cost of renting or buying means that you are actually worse off 
in other parts of the country, even if your wage looks like it's higher because of the cost of housing. But then when you go out to um, the non-London cities, uh, I've been doing some work on this with guys at Harvard and at King's. We're publishing our third paper next week. Uh, We find that if you look at the reason why our cities are less productive than other comparable cities in Europe, why don't Leeds or Manchester or Birmingham do as well as Frankfurt or Lille or Milan? And the reason is because the cities are effectively smaller. They have less power and agglomeration, what economics talks about, because we don't build enough homes and also because our transport systems locally aren't good enough. And that means we're less productive, we grow less fast, that means less money for the exchequer. So whether you're talking about fairness to young people or the growth of the economy or getting votes in general elections, doing something about the housing market in Britain is now an absolute imperative. Now neither of us have to worry about getting elected. Um, I think we both represented kind of greenbelt type seats. You, know, you on the outskirts of Wakefield and Leeds and me on the outskirts of Manchester. So set that aside. We're going to come back to the local politics in a moment. If we were, you know, Soviet style, I'm not having to worry about democracy. What would you do? What are the levers you would pull to get homes being built in Britain and to enable younger people to afford those homes? Well, I think, first of all, you've got to build a national sense of mission and purpose that we aren't going to be a fair country to young people or stronger economically unless we build more homes. And you have to say it's like big, and it's not simply because migration numbers have been higher. It's actually a bigger, more strategic objective than simply that. The second thing is it's good for the government to say we should build more on brownfield sites in cities. And I was totally in favour of that when I was representing an out-of-town constituency. But the reality is that is hard and sometimes expensive and doesn't do all of the job. And then protecting greenbelt, valuable greenbelt, is really, really important. I want to live in a society where we protect green spaces between towns, but there's lots and lots of land on the edge of cities and towns, which is much more complicated to develop because it's just on the edge of the greenbelt, which frankly is no different from the land in the next field. And you have to be sensible about how you go about that. But Unless so more building on brownfield, you know, obviously, but more building on green... Flexibly on, on the edge of cities. Belt. But then you've also got to put in place the transport and the public services to actually make those developments work. And then you've also got to be tough on the developers and say, look, we're giving you stability, we're putting the incentives in place, but you've got to use the land with planning permission on to get on and build. And that has always been a bit of a struggle Because they bank the land, well. don't they, waiting... For your house prices to go up and so Kate Barker in that review called for a planning gain supplement, which is basically a levy on unused land with planning permission. And in order to recycle that money back into social housing or into house building, it didn't happen in the end, but it should have done. I mean, I think there are a couple of other things you have to do. I agree with both those. You have to also free up mortgage finance. You know, one of the consequences of the financial crash and the collapse of banks like Northern Rock was that, you know, for very understandable reasons, and I was Chancellor for part of this period, the regulators toughened up the conditions around getting a mortgage. So it's much harder to get an interest-only mortgage, and it's obviously no longer possible to get the 120% mortgage that Northern Rock was offering. And that's all helped with financial stability, but it's made it really hard for a young person, or indeed, I say young person, you know, almost anyone on regular 
average salaries and incomes to afford the huge deposits that are now required. And that's why government schemes like shared equity schemes help to buy have come in. Although Jeremy Hunt in the papers today is rumoured he's thinking of introducing 99% mortgages in the budget. I mean, people will think that's back to the future in a bad way. But I do think, you know, if you think about how most people did get on the housing ladder in the 70s and 80s, it was through interest-only mortgages with 5% 5% or 1% exactly. deposits. That's certainly what we did. Yeah. You know, stamp duty holidays, there's quite a lot of talk there'll be one in the budget. I mean... If you uh, want to send a signal, it's a good signal. But it doesn't... But, they, all the studies have been done by the Treasury suggest it makes zero difference. It brings forward house purchases and then when you end the holiday, you then get a drought. I think At, the planning system is actually the thing which will have a bigger impact on than any other tax incentive, whether you actually can get the planning system working across the country in order to deliver the homes that the government is committing to build. Right. Now, I said at the beginning of this segment, you know, let's forget about the fact we have to get elected. Now, what about Keir Starmer? So Keir Starmer very much has to get elected. He's uh, doing everything he possibly can to get himself into number 10. I would say he's taken a bit of a risk on housing. For people who say he's extremely boring, he's, uh, you know, showing no political courage and um, he's backing off all these fights that he should be having over things like the transition to a green economy. One area where he has taken a risk is on housing. And this is what he said recently about housing. Tough choices, but the right choices. Choices we make with our eyes wide open. We choose the builders, not the blockers. Right. So when I became an MP in 2001, there were Labour MPs up and down the Thames Estuary in Surrey and Sussex in Kent. That's where Labour is going to need to win if it wants to get a majority, particularly if, as we've discussed before, it can't get all those seats in Scotland that it uh, usually could have banked on. Now, if Keir Starmer is saying we're going to build all over the Greenbelt in places like that, we're going to back the uh, builders, not the blockers, that is going to be grist to the Tory mill in local campaigns in those seats. And it really, you know, it does motivate voters who... Maybe you can call them NIMBYs, but they don't want a bloody great housing development next to them. And that might make the difference between voting for the local Labour MP who's going to tear up the Greenbelt rules and the Tory MP who says they're going to stand by them. If I think back to my former self fighting my out-of-town constituency on the edge of Leeds and the edge of Wakefield, you know, I would have found this concerning. I would have sort of been a bit worried about this rhetoric. Not that I disagree with building more homes. And uh, you know, to be fair, the big northern cities have done a good job in recent years of delivering on the house building. Around where we live in Cusford, huge numbers of new homes have been built over the last 10 or 15 years around the north of Wakefield as well. But it would have kind of worried me about the rhetoric. And as you say, you have to stand back politically and think, who am I speaking to here? I mean, it is true that young people need more homes and reform in the housing market. But I think all the evidence is they're voting Labour. And they may not be voting Labour just about housing. They may be voting Labour because of wider issues. But this is an important part of it. Appealing to young people in cities is not going to win Labour the next election. Appealing to the views of Labour MPs isn't going to win Labour the next election because the important views are the people who aren't MPs at the moment but might become MPs and are currently just candidates. You can see why from Rachel Reeves' point of view, builders not blockers is kind of a good phrase because it doesn't cost a lot of money. It costs some money, but actually... And it's alliterative, which always helps. And it's which also <laughs> helps. But... Um, I don't think you want to give the impression in marginal seats outside the cities that anybody who worries about protecting valuable green belt is a blocker and that you're always on the side of the the builders. And, you know, 
you always get into trouble in politics when something feels like a good thing to say at the time and you say it without asking yourself the very hard question, are we sure we're going to want to say the same thing three weeks before a general election or three months before? And I think that builders, not blockers, rhetoric, I think it's potentially a bit divisive. It's not the sense of national mission and purpose. Let's get the homes we need for heroes. Let's deliver for our young people. It's a whose side are you on? I think you've got to be a little bit careful. That's what I'm saying. So if I can you allow me a little bit of name dropping, I did uh, tell the Queen. No. I did tell Her Majesty the Queen, the late Queen, about our you plans. You would never name drop. Of course I wouldn't. This was after I'd had tea with Dr. Dre. I had... Uh, What's uh, his I, views on housing? <laughs> he, he wants lots of them. <laughs> the uh, you know, I told the late Queen about our plans to have a new town at Ebbsfleet in the Thames Estuary. And uh, she was very interested in those. And um, I explained, you know, of course, this was building on previous generations who had had new towns in places like Milton Keynes and uh, Welling Garden City. And she said to me, oh, yes, uh, Welling Garden City. I think my grandmother opened Welling Garden City. (laughs) (laughs) Just a reminder that uh, this argument is not new in politics. Let us hope in the budget Jeremy Hunt will have some new towns for King Charles to open in the coming years. We should leave it there. So my uh, friend David Cameron has just been at the G20 in Rio with other foreign ministers, including the Russian foreign minister. He wasn't there for the carnival. He was not there for the carnival. He was there to deliver a pretty stern message, along with other Western foreign ministers, that the murder of Alexei Navalny was completely unacceptable, that Russia should be held accountable. Rather sadly, there were allies of Russia around the table. People think it's you know, self-evident that Russia should be held to account on this. But uh, Brazil, who's actually hosting the G20, has sided with Russia. I had quite an extraordinary experience last night. I, went, I took our dog for a walk, Albie, and I walked past the Russian embassy. And there was an enormous bank of flowers and photos and tributes to Navalny outside the embassy. It was a bit... It's very close to where Princess Diana used to live, and it's not on the same size as the Princess Diana flower display, but it's but it's pretty big and it's pretty impressive and reminds us of the extraordinary courage of that man who gave his life for democracy in Russia. You know, it's an interesting. It, it's all of these issues. We were talking about Gaza earlier. We've mentioned David Cameron throughout this show. I don't think we would be talking about another Tory foreign secretary quite as much. He has definitely stepped in. I'm hugely biased here, but he stepped in and he's massively upgraded Britain's foreign policy effort. And he's shown what happens when you get a really big character in one of the big jobs, as opposed to a series of perfectly kind of workaday politicians who are kind of capable cabinet ministers. Truss, Boris Johnson. Dominic Rabb, James Cleverley, some of them perfectly nice people, by the way. But I think Cameron has shown up what can happen when you get someone with real imagination and political skill into one of the top jobs. And he's showing on this issue that the UK is leading on the question of sanctions against the Russians. He's actually made a new announcement this week. Yeah, he's imposed sanctions on some of the people who run the prisons that uh, Navalny died in. I mean, I have to say none of these sanctions seem to have had the effect that the West hoped more broadly against Russia. I mean, what would make a difference, and David Cameron's in the forefront of arguing for this as well, is that the West, particularly the US, continues to support Ukraine in the war with 
Russia. I mean, that is the thing that's put the most pressure on Putin. It was only a year ago that we had that attempted coup against Putin because of what was going wrong from the Russian point of view in that war. So, you know, these sanctions are fine. But I think you and I have both dealt with sanctions and we know that they don't they're useful tools, but they don't have the kind of real effect that people would hope they do. Look, it's a continual struggle trying to to make them work. It was something which particularly took off after the 9-11 attacks in 2001. And to begin with, trying to make those sanctions against individuals work was very hard. There was continual problems. But in this case, we are talking about a pot of money of hundreds of billions of dollars. So that would make a material difference. So there's one thing, which is you can impose sanctions, which is, you know, if I imposed sanctions on you, you couldn't access your bank account, you couldn't spend the money you have in your bank account and your bank account would be frozen. There's now a new argument, which is as well as freezing the bank accounts of these Russian oligarchs and also the Russian state, the money should be seized, confiscated essentially, and used, for example, to support Ukraine. And that would be quite a departure for the Western financial system. The kind of banking community and others argue, look, fundamentally, that's going to undermine trust in Western banking systems and push people to bank elsewhere in the world. And that's not a good thing for the West. I thought an interesting kind of middle way through, uh, the last really effective foreign secretary, you know, well, not maybe not the last, that's being a bit unfair, but you know, William Hager, I thought was pretty effective foreign secretary. He's arguing this week that we should be using just the interest on that money to support Ukraine. I certainly think... We should be sort of, you know, Trump-proofing the support for Ukraine as much as we possibly can, i.e. finding money from these Russian assets, getting Europe to step up more so that if Trump does cut off support for Ukraine, that's not the end for the Ukrainian people. And it's interesting in the G7, it's continental European countries who are more cautious about this, it seems. But look, David Cameron was, he was in Brazil, but he actually... He made it a bit of a a detour. He went to visit the Falklands. I was kind of quite taken by this. And I wasn't going to bring it up. But then we've had a question from one of our listeners called Jonathan, who said what I was thinking. Hi there, John from Essex here. Just wanted to say really enjoying the podcast and loving having some political insiders giving their opinions rather than the traditional Westminster hacks. My question is, with David Cameron looking increasingly like the only sensible person left in government, do you think that he may make a play to regain the leadership of the Conservatives and govern from the Lords? It has been done before. And supplementary question, would George Osborne serve in a Lord Cameron cabinet? Thanks. Bye-bye. I was looking at these things this week and thinking, you know, if Grant Chaps was on his way to an international meeting and popped into the, the Falklands, or if Liz Truss had done it when she was trying to become Prime Minister when she was Foreign Secretary, even if James Cleverly did it, then I wouldn't have been surprised. But I was a bit surprised by David Cameron doing this because it's such an overtly political thing to do. He didn't need to go to the Falklands. It's not clear that it advances our diplomatic interests. It sort of opens a sore with Argentina when they're trying to um, themselves stabilise a, a crisis in that country. And so I thought, What's in his mind? I mean, is he? Is is Jonathan Wright? Could he be? Well, no. Well, I think this is a classic example of where, you know, everyone's trying to work out. And there must be some really complicated reason why David Cameron's specifically gone to the Falklands. And by the way, there's a good purpose in the British Foreign Secretary being there and reaffirming, you know, our support for the islanders. But I think people forget that David Cameron is someone in his late 50s who, you know, we're both in our 50s, and 
If you He's are basically a, the same age as me, a yeah, child of the eighties. Right. If you're a centrist dad in your fifties or older, you remember the Falklands War. So well. Right. It was such a seminal event in our childhoods. I was fifteen. Right. You see, you see, I was uh, what was I? I was twelve or something. But when it happened, we all followed the events, you know, the names of the places like St. Carlos Bay, Goose Green. Galahad uh, Troopship. You know, the SAS attack on South Georgia. They're, they're I saw the um, the fleet leaving Come on, from actually, Portsmouth. It was amazing. Okay. Such a moment. It's basically an excuse to um, have a trip down memory lane. Let's play the medley. That ship was a danger to our boys. That's why that ship was sunk. I know it was right to sink her, and I would do the same again. I'm not allowed to say how many planes joined the raid, but I counted them all out, and I counted them all back. Their pilots were unhurt, cheerful, and jubilant, giving thumbs-up signs. HMS Sheffield was attacked late this afternoon by an Argentine missile. When there was no longer any hope of saving the ship, the ship's company abandoned ship. British troops landed on South Georgia this afternoon. They have now successfully taken control of Gritviken. At about 6 p.m. London time, the white flag was hoisted in Gritviken beside the Argentine flag. And shortly afterwards, the Argentine forces there surrendered to British forces. Thank you very much. What's your reaction, rejoice at that news and congratulate our forces and the Marines. That voice in the middle there, the very, very clipped, old-fashioned English voice was a guy called Ian MacDonald, who was the the Ministry of Defence spokesperson. Oh, of course. And he came on every night and did these <laughs> these, these statements in this very, very old-fashioned way. But they were compelling. People were gripped by we're him. Absolutely gripped. So I, I think in amongst all the conspiracy theories about why David Cameron has gone to the Falklands, there may be a very simple explanation, which is he wants to go and see the places that uh, he heard about when he was a child following the troops at school. And what's the point of being foreign secretary if you can't uh, get in a bit of political tourism along the way? So no political motive, just sort of... No, um, no, perfectly legitimate foreign policy motive, which is assert the support for the Falkland Islanders. But, you know, also a pretty cool trip. I mean, I, I remember going when the G20 was being held in Moscow, obviously very different circumstances to the situation we've got at the moment, going to see Stalin's dacha, which you had to get the special permission of the Russian government to do. And uh, this was sort of sealed off since the day he died. And almost no one from the West had ever been to see it. And it was an extraordinary thing to do. You know, Ken Clark was always going on birdwatching trips, wouldn't he? he? He would go to a G7 meeting and he would have then go on a birdwatching trip in to see local birds for a day or two after the meeting. Yes, Berlusconi had a similar approach to some of these summits when it came to no, bird I think, watching. I, I, think, I think Ken Clark was definitely looking at the feathered variety. But, Gordon uh, Brown was never really into trips in quite the same way. Going on those trips with him must have been uh, pretty uh, extraordinary. Normally with Gordon Brown, the trips turn out to happen in error. There was one, actually, I remember really well. Very early on, we were out in Hong Kong and um, we'd all agreed to go out for a drink with the British media had come out with us. And um, for some reason, they chose a bar which turned out to be in a very, very red light area of Hong Kong. And then we lost the second permanent secretary, Sir Nigel Wicks, on the way back. And we had to send out a search party to the red light district to try and find the Treasury. Lots of volunteers. Pardon? Lots of volunteers for the search Lots party. Lots of volunteers. My best trip story, actually, though, is a crazy, crazy story. We were travelling from the Commonwealth Finance Minister's meeting in Mauritius 
over to the ASEAN finance ministers in Bangkok. And the only way to get there in time from this Commonwealth finance ministers meeting was to hire a small plane and to fly from Mauritius to Johannesburg. And so we arrived at this plane and uh, there was a pilot and his co-pilot and there was four of us in the plane, me and Gordon, private secretary and Gus O'Donnell. And we get on this plane, take off and the in-flight service was a cool box which had South African beer and sandwiches. But then en route, the pilot suddenly yells back, I'm really sorry, he says, the wind is stronger than we thought. We're going to have to, to stop over in Madagascar. And so we landed uninvited and unannounced in Madagascar to refuel. And we've landed on the, on the tarmac. And these guys come over in this car, one really big, one really small. And it turns out they wanted something. The pilot goes out to um, speak to them and comes back and says, I'm really sorry. They say that we can't refuel unless we pay them $500. And Gordon said, well, we can't do that because we've just been at Mauritius at the Commonwealth Finance Minister's meeting and agreed a communique, which is about tackling corruption in developing countries. He said, we can't now pay to get refuel. And we said, well, what do we do? So Gordon says, look, he says, I'll go out and explain to these two guys what we've agreed in Mauritius and read them the communique. Meanwhile, he said, you and Gus, see how many dollars we've got. So we start collecting <laughs> the dollars in the back of the plane. How much can we afford for this bribe while Gordon's explaining why bribe? Anyway, suddenly there's a roar in the air. We look over and there's an Aeroflot plane landing. And um, the two guys clearly realise they're more likely to get money out of the Aeroflot passengers than us. So they say, wait here, drive off in their car. And the pilot then yells back and he says, guys, he said, they weren't watching. I filled up. He said, we'll do a runner. So we basically then took off without any clearance from air traffic control, didn't pay any money, didn't pay for the fuel and did a runner in a small aeroplane to Johannesburg. That was a good trip. That is a great story. <laughs> Completely, <laughs> totally. I was trying to think because I'm like, none of those, I don't have a story that tops that. Although I wasn't on this particular trip, but David Cameron, I know, he went to India and, you know, there was all these state banquets and things. And he went, he decided, look, try and get outside the bubble. We'll go to a restaurant just with my team. So they go to a restaurant. The waiter's like, oh, we've got the British Prime Minister here. And he says, would you like some red wines? You know, what would you like to drink? And David Cameron says, yeah, yeah, bring us a nice bottle of red wine. Anyway, then the bill comes. No one had checked what this bottle of red wine was going to be. And it cost thousands of pounds. And <laughs> no one had enough money to pay for this red wine. And uh, it basically sort of hung around for about a year, like how they were going to pay this bill. I mean, some it of was paid it at the time. It was, it was paid at the time, but it was paid by one of the civil servants who had a kind of credit card, but, you know, obviously expected to somehow get the money back. Eventually, we had to get a Tory donor to pay for this bottle of red wine. That had been... Anyway, let's just end on David Cameron's future, not his past. I'm going to make two observations. I mean, first of all, is it totally beyond the realms, as our listener John was saying, that David Cameron comes back as Tory leader? Well, I mean, he's certainly demonstrating why he was a pretty powerful and effective Tory leader in the past, the skills he had. And he's shown he's got, you know, I would say more imagination than Theresa May and more ethics than Boris Johnson and more sense than Liz Truss and more politics than Rishi Sunak. So the Tory party is all going like, oh, that's quite nice. But quite hard, isn't it, to mount a comeback? I've got a better idea. You see, I think this is a totally wacky idea, and I don't mean it totally seriously before anyone takes me too seriously on it. Why doesn't Keir Starmer suggest that David Cameron could remain foreign secretary if there's a Labour government? On the grounds, you sometimes get in the US that you bring in people from the other side, and there have been moments in British politics when you've had governments of all the talents and so on. And you could say in a very difficult international situation, we're maintaining continuity. We're asking Lord Cameron to remain Obviously, some in the Labour Party wouldn't like it. But 
As we've discussed on this podcast before, Starmer is prepared to do everything and anything to win. And uh, to borrow a phrase from the Falklands War, it would be an exocet into the uh, Tory ship. Well, look, we would love to hear from listeners as to whether you think Keir Starmer should ask David Cameron to continue as his foreign secretary if there's a Labour government. And you can send in your voice notes to questions at politicalcurrency.co.uk. I would be totally staggered if that was ever to happen. And I think the thing that you can say, which is working to his advantage at the moment, is that being foreign secretary in a consensual, not hugely party political way, you know, I've been saying I'm agreeing with what he's saying on Gaza and agreeing what he's saying on Navalny. I think if David Cameron... All the more reasons to make him a, uh, you know, foreign secretary in a Labour government. If he plunged himself back into party politics as leader, that would be very messy. Yeah. And what chance is there of Keir Starmer asking him? I would say... Well, I would say none, but, you know, uh, you got never a, say never. He's got a little twinkle in his eye. Do you think it would be a good it's idea? Right, Dad, it's a, well, I think it would be a very good idea for Keir Starmer, but I think David would probably say no. But who knows? I haven't asked him because he's on the other side of the world. I know, on his junket. He's going um, to be literally, thanks very much, George, for raising that. <laughs> and look, the easy question is, if David Cameron became the leader again, would you serve in his cabinet? That was Jonathan's question. Of course you would. But if Keir Starmer rang you and said, <laughs> George, I want you to be, I'm not sure what job it would be. I don't think, I, I, that is definitely never going to happen. Secretary of State for Culture, Media and Sports because <laughs> of all of your, of all of your, uh, you know, the Olympics, Chelsea, the theatre. You know, British Museum. British Museum. Yeah. Not- that's, that's all going well. So we'll be back on Monday answering lots more of your questions. And uh, who knows? Who knows? Yes. See you on Monday. Who knows? See you then. Thanks for listening to Political Currency. This has been a Persephonica production. Why don't more infant formula companies use organic, grass-fed whole milk instead of skim? Why don't more infant formula companies use the latest breast milk science? Why don't more infant formula companies run their own clinical trials? Why don't more infant formula companies use more of the proteins found in breast milk? Why don't more infant formula companies have their own factories instead of outsourcing their manufacturing? We wondered the same thing. So we made Byheart a better formula for formula. Learn more at byheart.com.